Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. There's a verse of scripture that I think many of us take great comfort in. And when others hear it, they say, yeah, right. The verse is Romans 8, 28. In the version I memorized it, it says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now I hear that verse and I say, boy, I need that truth. And, and this is one of my go-to verses whenever I'm going through a tough time in my life because I have seen over and over and over again how God has brought good out of the difficult circumstances of my life. And others of you might look at this and you say, well, how nice for you. And God's never done that for me. And I don't see how even God could bring anything good out of what I'm going through right now. And so there are skeptics uh, when it comes to a verse like this. Well, I think the first thing you need to do, if you find yourself skeptical of the truth of this verse, the first thing you need to ask is to ask, do I really love God? Because you notice this verse doesn't say that God does this for just anybody. It says, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And so you need to start by asking, do I really love God? Have I been called according to his purpose? And by that, I mean, have you put your faith and trust in Christ as your savior? Have you started new life in Christ? That's God's purpose for you. That's what he wants for all of us, that we come to faith in Christ and, and begin living the life that only he can give us. So if, if you can't say that you love God, well, then you shouldn't expect this verse to work out in your life. There's no guarantee that things should work out for good for you. But for others, you might say, well, yeah, I, I love God. I've been called according to his purpose. I trust in Jesus. I've begun walking with him. But I still don't see how God, even God, could bring anything good out of the thing I'm currently going through. Well, you know, sometimes you just need to trust God and be patient and train yourself to look for the good that God will bring about. Our series in the life of Joseph has been one huge illustration of how God works in our lives for good. In fact, we've named this whole series For Good. As we quickly move to the punchline of the whole story in, in Genesis chapter 50, where Joseph is talking with his brothers and saying, you know, you, you sold me to slavery. You meant it for evil, but God intended it for good. God meant it for good. And so far in our series, we've seen God work for good in the life of a dysfunctional family. We've seen God work in the enslavement of a younger brother 
for good. We've seen God work in the imprisonment of an innocent man for good. We've seen God work in the forgetfulness of a royal butler for good. We've seen God work in, a, in the nightmares of a mighty ruler for good. We've seen God work in a seven-year drought and a famine in Egypt that reached into the neighboring lands for good. And today we're going to see God working through the travels and travails of an immigrant family for good. You know how we've been tracking through the story of Joseph, how God raised up this young Hebrew man and through a whole series of events, elevated him to the second place in all of Egypt in charge of the whole famine relief program for the whole nation of Egypt. Joseph's own brothers have come to him twice down in Egypt asking to buy grain from him, not knowing who he was. Joseph has put these men to the test and has found true repentance in them. They're not the same men who sold him into slavery 22 years before. They are different men. They have changed. They've done an about face. And so in chapter 45, we saw last week how Joseph forgave them. And he invited them to bring their father, Jacob, down to Egypt along with their families to wait out the remaining years of famine still to come. He reveals himself for who he is. And, and the brothers have returned home with Jake, to Jacob with the news that his favorite son, Joseph, isn't dead after all these years. He's alive and he's ruling in Egypt and he's invited us all to come down to Egypt and live with him there and, and wait out this famine. And now we come to Genesis 46. Now Genesis 46 has basically three basic parts to it. There's the first four verses that talk about the family beginning the trip to Egypt. And then in verses uh, 5 through 27, you basically have a census of all the, the family of Jacob that traveled with him to Egypt. And it names them, name by name, 70 individuals, his sons, his, his grandsons, and and that doesn't even include the, the, the daughters-in-law and, and other members of the family. So there are 70 of them, name by name. And the basic point of this section is to say that they all went, every one of them, the whole family of Jacob. Nobody was left behind. They all went with him into Egypt. And then in the end part of the chapter, it talks about Jacob's arrival in Egypt, his reunion with Joseph after so many years and how they settle into Egypt and begin to uh, be provided for there. And Pastor Joe's going to talk about that part next week. But today I want to focus on just those first four verses of this chapter because of the way that they so powerfully uh, speak to how God works, not just in the circumstances of our lives, but how God works in, in all of the moves of history. All of history moves at his command for good. So these verses connect us in a powerful way to the whole story of Scripture, God's big story, and how God is at work in everything for a very particular good. We pick up the story in Genesis 46, verse 1, where we left off last week, and it says, So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Now, it would be easy to kind of just read past this verse and say, okay, so they made a pit stop on the way to Egypt. But there's, going, there's a whole lot more going on here than that. The writer of Genesis is inviting us to see what's happening to this family in light of the family's whole history. 
And we're to understand that behind this is, is generations of this family, uh, beginning with Abraham, who was the first immigrant who came to Canaan from Ur of the Chaldees at God's command. God said, go to a place I will show you. And he picked up and he went. And when he arrived in Canaan, God said, because you trusted in me, you believed me, I'm going to do several things for you. I'm going to make you into a great nation, even though Abraham had no children of his own. I'm going to make you into a great nation. One day, I'm going to give this land that you're in to your descendants. And through that nation, through your offspring, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. That was God's promise to Abraham. Well, Abraham didn't have a child, but God gave them a child in Abraham and Sarah's old age. They had a son and they named him Isaac. And God said that it would be through this particular son that all these promises would be fulfilled. Isaac would become a great nation. He would give this land to the descendants of Isaac. And through his line would come one who would bless all the nations of the earth. Well, Isaac, at one point in his life, settled in Beersheba, the very place where Jacob finds himself now. And of Isaac's two sons... God made it clear that Jacob would be the one through whom the promise would come. The great nation, the land, the blessing of all nations would come through Jacob. Well, Beersheba is on the way to Egypt. It's the southernmost large city in, uh, in Palestine, in Canaan, on the way to Egypt. So it's your last stop before you cross the Negev into Egypt. And here it is. You know, Jacob kind of coming home to his boyhood home. And he probably can't help but reminisce. I mean, I can't help, but every time I go back to 186th Street in Lansing, Illinois, I can't help but think about, you know, that house where I grew up and all the things that happened there and, and all the neighbors' houses and who lived where and all the adventures we had as kids and riding my bike around Schultz Park and going up to the corner store and buying candy. and It all just comes flooding back. And I can't help but think that something like that might have happened to Jacob as he finds himself in Beersheba on his way to Egypt. He's thinking about how, you know, it was here that his father, Isaac, actually favored his older brother Esau over him and how his mother Rachel favored Jacob over Esau and how Rachel and Jacob conspired to deceive their father so that Jacob or Isaac would give the blessing to Jacob that he intended to give to Esau. And Esau was so mad about it that he wanted to kill Jacob. So Jacob had to flee. He fled from this very place. He fled from Beersheba. And he, he was going to go to Padam Aran where his, his uh, uncle Laban lived and, and get away from his brother who was trying to kill him. And on his first night away from home, God met him there at a place that came to be known at Bethel as Bethel. And there God told him, that Jacob, I'm going to be with you as you travel away from home. I'm going to bring you back to this land. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to one day give this land on which you lie to your descendants. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In, in, it was you know, interesting how he's, he's back at this place where all of that started. And now... As an old man with 12 sons and grandsons totaling 70, he finds himself back home and he pauses 
before leaving the land that God had said he would give to him and his descendants. And maybe he pauses here to make sure he's doing the right thing. After all, in another time of famine, when his grandfather Abram had gone to Egypt looking for food, Abram had so embarrassed himself that Pharaoh kicked him out of Egypt altogether. And then in another time of famine, when his father Isaac thought about taking the family down to Egypt and finding food, God said to Isaac, no, I don't want you to go. I want you to stay here in the land and I will provide for you here. And now here's Jacob facing yet another famine, perhaps the worst of all. And it sure looks like God has made provision for uh, for Jacob through his long lost son, who is now ruling in Egypt, made provision for the whole family to go down to Egypt and be provided for and to be saved from starvation. But before leaving Canaan behind, Jacob does a very wise thing. He pauses to worship the Lord and offer sacrifices to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's as if he wants to make sure that he has God's permission to make this journey, that he has God's permission to take the whole family to Egypt. And so before leaving the land that has been promised to his descendants, he stops to, to let the God who made that promise know that they will be loyal to him whether they're in the land or not. Now, I think there's a good lesson to learn from Jacob's actions here. And that is, don't make a move without God's blessing. Don't make a move without God's blessing. Before you set off on a new adventure, make sure you seek God's direction. Before you move on to what's next, honor God by asking him to show you whether he approves. A few weeks ago, I told you the story about how God took us from a church that we served for 23 years in Pennsylvania moved us all the way to Minnesota to work at the seminary, and then four years later moved us back here to the East Coast to Bayside Chapel, and how only he could have done that. Only God could have worked all that out. There's a part of the story I didn't tell you. And that is how when uh, the invitation came to leave Grace Point and go to Bethel Seminary, the provost of the seminary called and he said, hey, would you consider being the dean of the Center for Transformational Leadership here at Bethel? And he told me what that job entailed. And, you know, it was a very attractive job because uh, it would involve uh, leading the part of the seminary that would train men how to preach and, and, and tr uh, lead up, uh, raise up leaders to, to lead churches. And so, you know, that was, I thought, to spend the last part of my career doing that, just that would be great. And I talked to Diane about it. And for the first time in 23 years, she agreed that, yeah, we should consider this. Because every other time an opportunity had presented itself, somebody had said, hey, would you think about being our pastor? Or hey, would you think about doing this or that? My head would spin and I'd be all flattered and thinking, you know, this would be amazing. And, and she'd say, no, God's not done with us here yet. There's still work to do here. And you know what? She was right every time. And so for the first time in 23 years, she's saying, you know what? This might really be of the Lord. This makes sense. I can see how God would use you in this. So we prayed about it together, and we were becoming more and more convinced that this is the way God was leading. But before we went and just announced it to everybody, I felt like I had to take one more step to make sure. And so I went to the elders of the church, uh, these men with whom I had served for 20 plus years, 
and I laid it all before them. I said, here's the invitation that has come to me. It seems to make sense. I, I think that God might be leading us on. Diane is, is thinking the same thing. But before we say yes, we want to know what you guys think. And without hesitation, they, they, they kind of swallowed hard. And they said, you know what? We'll hate to lose you, but this makes complete sense. We've seen over the years how you love to mentor men into ministry. We've seen how you, you have taught at the seminary, how you served on boards and, and all these things related to the seminary. We can see how God could really use you in a powerful way to do this. And they said, not only would we release you and bless that move, but we would commission you to that work. Wow, is that strong confirmation, right? That God was in this, that God was leading us on. I'm telling you, before you make a move, make sure that you've checked in with the Lord. Don't make a move without God's blessing. So Jacob stops there in Beersheba, Beersheba before leaving Canaan, before heading across the Negev to Egypt. He stops to worship the Lord, and it seems as if he's presenting a, an unspoken request, asking for God's blessing on the journey they're about to take. And look at how, how God answers in verse 2. It says, and God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Jacob's encounters with God often came in the night like this. It's kind of interesting. It, he has a dream in chapter 28 at Bethel and God tells him that he would bless his travels to Padan Aram and bring him back home again. In another dream in chapter 31, God told him it was time to come back from there and return home to the place of his fathers. In chapter 32, he's on his way home and he encounters angels on the way and, and wrestles with one at night, wrestles through the night with this angel who, who says he should now be called Israel rather than Jacob. And in chapter 35, God tells him to go back to Bethel where his journey began and to build an altar there to the Lord. And now as he gets ready to embark on the second great journey of his life, having built an offer, an altar, the Lord again speaks to him in a night vision. And he says in verse 3, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. It's interesting to me that Jacob hasn't told God that he's afraid, but God apparently understands that he is. There's some fear here. And so God speaks to that unspoken fear. Now, what might Jacob have had to be afraid of? Well, I, to begin with, I think there are the, the obvious things like, you know, the way you would be afraid if you were taking your whole family and moving to a foreign country where you don't know the language and you don't know the customs and the people there may not like you. They may resent you being there. They may, may resent that you're taking their jobs. They may not welcome you. They may say mean things about you. All the same things immigrants to our own country might be afraid of. But beyond that, you know, he, Jacob might be afraid because of the family's bad track record when it came to going to Egypt in a time of famine. He might be thinking about, you know, Grandpa Abraham getting kicked out of Egypt by Pharaoh. He might think about his father and how God told him not to go to Egypt in a time of Pharaoh. And so he wants to make sure that, that this is okay with the Lord. And also, how are they ever going to possess the land of Canaan that God has promised to give to First Abraham, then Isaac, and then to Jacob himself, if Jacob takes the whole family and they just walk away from it all. 
You know, Jacob received at Bethel the same promise as, as Isaac and Abraham, that he was going to make him a great nation and, and, and give him the land that he was, he was sleeping on that night. Well, God had brought him back to that land once before. Could God bring him back again? And God says, do not be afraid. This is all part of my plan. I'm at work in this for good. He says to, to Jacob, in essence, do you remember when I told you that I would make you a great nation? Well, guess what? I'm not going to do that here in Canaan. I'm going to do that in Egypt. The 70 of you in your little clan today are going to be like a seed planted in the rich soil of Egypt, and there you will multiply and grow, and there I will make you into a mighty nation. Don't be afraid to go and take your sons and all their little ones. This is all part of my plan. I'm at work in this famine. I'm the God who can take an immigrant family to a foreign country in a time of famine and make something great of that family. So if lesson number one in this passage is don't make a move without God's blessing, lesson two is don't be afraid to go where God leads. Don't be afraid to go where God leads. If you're moving in God's direction, you don't need to be afraid to go where he's taking you or to do what he asks you to do. Wherever he leads you, whatever he asks you to do, you can be sure that he'll be at work in it for good. And if there's one thing I've learned in 60 plus years of following Jesus, it's never to be afraid where God leads. I remember as a 17 year old, uh, I, I, God had led me to Wheaton College to begin my preparation for ministry. And that summer, just weeks before you know, going off to school, my dad came to me and he said, Dave, I'm really afraid that we're just not gonna be able to afford Wheaton. And I said, in my, I guess, childlike faith, Dad, if God wants me there, I'll trust, I trust that he'll provide. And he did. In fact, I finished college and seminary with virtually no debt. But as, brand new college, as a brand new college graduate with hardly two nickels to rub together, God led Diane and I to get married and head straight off to seminary with no money, hardly. Well, that was stupid. I didn't know enough to be afraid, I guess. I was too young and dumb to even know I should be afraid, but 44 years later, Diane and I will both tell you that God led and God provided all the way. Whether it was to Kalamazoo, Michigan, or Newtown, Pennsylvania, or Minneapolis, Minnesota, or back here to Manahawk and NJ, we learned not to be afraid, but always to trust that God knew what he was doing. Don't make a move without God's blessing, but don't be afraid to go when God leads. And, you know, God says to Jacob here, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. Okay, so Jacob's saying, Lord, you're, you're telling me that the 70 of us are going to go down to Egypt, and there you're going to make us into a great nation. God says, that's right. But there's part of this that still doesn't quite add up, because God had told not only Abraham, but Isaac and then Jacob after him, not only that he would make of them a great nation, but that he would give the land of Canaan to their descendants. And now he's telling Jacob to leave the land of Canaan, lock, stock, and barrel, and take every member of the family with him. What about the promise of the land? Well, God speaks about that in verse four. 
He says, I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now, aside from this touching reassurance that Joseph would be at his side when he dies, what God tells Jacob is really important here. I myself will go with you to Egypt. Is there anything more reassuring when you're venturing off into the unknown than to be reminded that the Lord himself has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And more than that is the promise, I will bring you up again. Now this might have to do with how when Jacob died, Joseph would lead a procession back to Canaan to bury him in Canaan, but it likely and more importantly has to do with what God had told Abraham more than a hundred years before. I don't know if you remember back in our Abraham series, we talked about the night that God literally cut a covenant with Abraham. And it was at the cutting of that covenant in Genesis 15 that God reiterated all of his promises to Abraham that yes, you are going to have a son and that son is going to have offspring and those offspring are going to one day be more numerous than the stars in the sky. And not only that, you're going to become a mighty nation and, the, and I'm going to give your descendants this land. But, this is important, but God said on that occasion, Genesis 15 verse 13, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years and I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions and that's when I'll give them the land. That's what God is referring to here when he says, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, I will be with you and I will bring you up again. God had told Abraham that before his offspring would possess the land of promise, that they would first be enslaved for 400 years in another nation. And I wonder if Jacob realizes that that's what's happening here. Because we know from what happens in the book of Exodus that Jacob's family stays in Egypt a long time and a new Pharaoh comes into power who never knew Joseph and he sees the, the growing threat of all these Hebrews who are rapidly multiplying and becoming a mighty nation and a threat to, to the Egyptians, and they enslave them. For guess how long? 400 years. And it's during those years that, you know, the people of Israel must have wondered, what is going on? You know, God takes this, this tiny little clan, 70 people, and in the space of 400 years, they multiply in, into a, a, a nation of literally millions of people. And they become such a threat that, that uh, you know, they, they are enslaved in Egypt. And, and I wonder how for all those years, as serving as slaves, God's people would wonder, how in the world is this ever going to work out for good? There's no good can come of this. When in their slavery, God is at work behind the scenes, turning that tiny clan into a, a multitude of millions. And in their slavery, he's forging a hardy and resilient people. And when Pharaoh decrees that the Hebrews are becoming so numerous that their male babies must be put to death, one enterprising Jewish mother takes her little boy and puts him in a basket and hides him in the bulrushes along the Nile River, where 
the daughter of Pharaoh just so happens to come by to bathe and hears the baby cry and peeks in that basket and falls in love with this little guy and takes her, him home to be raised as her own son. And so you have a, a little Hebrew boy being raised in the court of Pharaoh, being given a royal education and learning the ways of the, the Egyptian court. And then one day Moses is forced to flee because of an accusation of murder and, and he spends the next 40 years out in the wilderness learning the ways of the wilderness. All of that perfect preparation for what God is going to call this, this man to do. He meets God at a burning bush where, where God says, uh, I want you to go back to Egypt and, and take all of that training of yours in the court and take all this experience in the wilderness and I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him it's time to let my people go. Ten plagues later, you know, God's people are expelled from Egypt with great riches, just as the Lord had promised Abraham. In the wilderness, they become a nation under law, and they have to be disciplined for their rebelliousness until God finally sees fit to bless them with military conquest, and they come into possession of that land that had long been promised them. And they lived there for more than a thousand years until... Generations later, a descendant of Abraham is born of the tribe of Judah, a direct descendant of King David, the son of Mary, one Jesus of Nazareth, who would live a sinless life, heal the sick and feed the hungry and cast out demons and calm storms on the sea and even raise the dead. And for all of that, out of jealousy, he was nailed to a Roman cross, to which he willingly went because knowing that as the eternal son of God who had become a man, he could offer his life as the only sufficient payment for the sins of all mankind. They, they executed him on that cross and laid him in a stone cold tomb. But on the third day, God raised him from the dead, victor over sin and death, so that now all who put their faith and trust in him can be forgiven of their sins and be given new life in him. Through the descendants of Abraham, that promise has been fulfilled. Not just a promise to make a great nation, not just a promise to give those people a land, but the promise that through that nation, in that land, would come one who would bring salvation to the world. And that's how the migration of one family fits into God's big story so that now to this very day, people of every nation are being blessed with the salvation found in Jesus until one day people of every tribe and tongue and language and nation will gather around the throne in praise of Jesus the Savior. And what I want you to see here today is how God was at work in it all for good in the migration of this family, in their eventual enslavement, in their exodus from Egypt, in their wilderness wandering, in the conquest of Canaan, in the days of judges and kings, and exile to Babylon, in their return to the land, in the census that a Roman emperor called for, 
someone by the name of Caesar Augustus that brought Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem where the Christ was to be born in the blindness of Israel's leaders who put Jesus to death in his resurrection from the dead in the Roman peace that allowed the gospel to spread rapidly through the first century in all the ups and downs in church history and in the modern missionary movement that has taken the gospel to the ends of the earth. God was at work in it all because God will stop at nothing to keep his promise. In fact, I think, you know, the bottom line today is that all of history moves at God's command for good. All of history. And I don't know about you, but I take great comfort in this when I see what's happening in our world today, and in particular in our society, and you see the loss of, of, of moral and ethical integrity, you see the increasing crassness and violence, uh, the, 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 the whole tone of our, our nation, where if God doesn't intervene and bring a great awakening soon, uh, he, there's no reason why we shouldn't expect his judgment. That this nation, I don't hope for this, but God, by his rights, could easily consign this nation to the dustbin of history. But you know what? Even then, I wouldn't worry. Even then, I would be convinced that even in that, God is at work in all the movements of history, bringing about his ultimate good. You know, Jacob may not have understood all that God was saying to him that day when he said, you know, go to Egypt, I'll go with you and I'll bring you back up. But I think it's important to see that the story of Joseph is not just a story about how God worked in difficult circumstances for the good of one young man and his family. It's also the story of how God worked in all the great movements of history, in drought and famine, in empires and rulers, in the enslavement of a whole race and their eventual deliverance, in migration and conquest. God was at work in it all to follow through on a single promise that through one descendant of Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. All of history moves at God's command for this particular good. That's how great our God is. That's what he's capable of. And he will stop at nothing to keep his promise to bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham's offspring, the Messiah. So, think about it. If our God is able to do all of that, don't you think you can trust him to work in all things for your good? And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. God worked in Joseph's life through betrayal and enslavement and unjust imprisonment, not only to save his family, but to make him a link in the long, long chain of events that ultimately resulted in our salvation. How might God be at work in the mess of your life? to bring about some good you can't even imagine yet. Who knows but that he might be at work right now in the broader movements of history to bring about that good. I remember a missionary family, they served in French-speaking West Africa. Their name was Curtis. And the church that I served in Michigan as an assistant pastor many years ago 
had a missionary house where they could host missionaries, families that were passing through or missionaries that needed a place to stay when they're on home assignment. Well, the Curtis family came and they stayed with us a whole year while they went around traveling to their supporting churches and reporting on their work and, and building up their support base and asking people to pray. And all, all those Sundays when they were out, weren't out speaking somewhere else, they would worship with us. So we got to know this family quite well. Well, there came a, a time when we knew that the Curtis family had tickets to return to West Africa to resume their work. It was already, you know, the date was already on the calendar. They had the tickets purchased. And then Reverend Curtis told us that we're not able to return as planned. There's going to be a delay because the dollar was weak at the time against the French franc. And the exchange rate being what it was, they were now undersupported. And so the mission agency told them that rather than returning to West Africa undersupported, they would have to get back on the trail and go contact more churches and raise more missionary support. And that was very discouraging to them, as you can imagine. Well, we all prayed about that with them. And I don't think it was even a week later that Reverend Curtis uh, came and he uh, stood before the congregation and he said, guess what? We're headed back to Africa on time. On the original date that we had set to return, we still have our tickets. We're leaving, you know, in two weeks. And he said what happened was that uh, there was a downturn in the French economy. And now the French franc was weak against the American dollar. And so the exchange rate was much better. And they were fully supported. And they were clear to go. And he said, who would have thought that God would devalue the whole French economy so that we could return to our work? <laughs> Folks, there's nothing that our God can't do. And he promises, he promises in all things to work together for our good and his glory. Let's stand and worship him together.